Hi, everybody. It's Michael Lane. I'm the president of Lift Park Group. Um, we've been doing these podcasts now, the Dare Greatly Space podcasts since October. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. It's been super fun. We have had amazing guests, interesting conversations related to uh, national policy, and we've done some deep dives into documents that get released. So that's kind of the makeup and plan of our show. We have a great guest tonight. I'll uh, wait a moment to bring her on. Um, and what we've been doing uh, has really been focused at that intersection of policy, infrastructure, and money. And that's been a lot of fun. That infrastructure piece has been super important because ultimately we want to build things in space. We don't just want to talk about building things in space. Policy has been vitally important, even though I know it's sometimes dull, it's super important to talk about where does this, uh, where, does the, where does the direction from on high come from, whether it's uh, whether it's a space agency, whether it's uh, at the federal level, not just in the United States, but all over the world, there's there's dozens, I think 60 or 65 space agencies around the world. There are seven or eight uh, space forces around the world. Policy matters. And if you ignore it, you ignore that you're peril. Um, and with that, I'm going to just jump in very quickly to some interesting news, and then we're going to get to our guest. Um, first up, India just announced their space policy. Now, we are not going to go into it. Uh, we don't have time, but it's here. It's here. It's really detailed. There's a lot to it. And it goes straight to the heart of why we do all the things that we do. So I'm going to post that to chat. So Indian space policy, not something you would normally dig into, but pretty darn important. I would argue that they are a major space power at this point, and it deserves the attention uh, of your eyeballs for a few minutes. So that's one piece. The second piece is... Uh, this U.S.-India Defense Acceleration Ecosystem, I don't totally love that title, but also super important to be paying attention to this, right? So this is our world. This is where we are, and, and ignoring this means we're not really doing justice to the world that we live in. Uh, you know, I wanted the whole world to go to space, so I'm excited when I see stuff. This. You know, last week we talked about, about Deloitte not to be outdone. Goldman Sachs comes out with a report, The Rise of Geopolitical Swing States. Super important, interesting read. Uh, it, is, it is saying some of the things we've been saying for a long time, but now you've got the Goldman's uh, brand behind it. So uh, one of the last things I'm going to show is this uh, how to build a power grid on the moon from 
IEEE. Uh, super relevant to the work that we at Liftport are doing right now. We are working on something that is pretty interesting and it's going to need a power grid on the moon. And then finally, and honestly, this is the worst document I've seen in a long time. Planet Labs, a company I really, really admire. Planet Labs has just come up with a document really focusing on deterrence by observation. How satellites have swung the direction of not just not just the war, uh, you know, the the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but also other things that are super important to monitor and pay attention to. So it's a multi-page document. Formatting is awful, but the content is terrific. So uh, I recommend taking a look at that stuff. That's your reading list. That's your homework for the week. I'm not going to go into it. I recommend that you take the time to review it. And with that, I am going to move on to our guest. Uh, we're getting some pretty funny uh, reactions from our from our team, from our uh, community. But homework is homework. So go, go tackle it. It's worth it. All right. With that, uh, we're going to switch gears and... Bring on our guest. I, I'm pretty excited to bring her on. She's a terrific human being. I think you'll find her pretty fascinating. And uh, I'm not going to tell her story. I'm going to let her do her origin story. Give me a second. Bailey Burns, how are you? I'm good. Can you guys hear me all right? Loud and clear. Good. Okay. Awesome. I'm doing great. I'm so thrilled. I feel like you and I need to catch up. This is not the forum for us to be catching up, but it's so good to see you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We haven't we haven't talked in almost well pre-pandemic, I think. So mm -hmm, it's been, pretty much. Yeah. 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 So um, uh, Bailey, just as a quick refresher, what we've been doing is that we've been doing this podcast. Uh, well, during the pandemic, uh, I'm going to tell this to everybody just to you. During the pandemic, uh, Liftport came very close to going out of business. Our core, our core task of building an elevator on the moon got sidelined like everybody else did when the pandemic hit. So we stopped doing the research that we were working on and wanted to just survive. And the way that we did that was we hosted 27 online conferences, virtual, virtual meetings, um, Hundreds, hundreds of, or thousands of people would attend different things. We did 27 of them for, I think, nine, nine different clients. Um, uh, Mars Society, Moon Society, International Space University, the Chief Scientist of U.S. Space Force, uh, Foundation for the Future, Mars Coin. I'm leaving somebody off, but I can't think who it is. Um, so uh, uh, that's what we did. And then as the pandemic shifted again, we focused on building podcasts, basically the uh, uh, same technology, different distribution path. So that's what we're doing. And it's great to have you on our show. Um, let's start with your origin story. Uh, you know, I know you a little bit from a couple of years ago, but... But let's, one of the things we try to do is show that there are a lot of paths into this industry. Um, 
you know, talent comes from a lot of different places. It comes from, you know, everybody has different talents, uh, different skills, different capabilities. You have an unusual one, which is pretty fun. We're going to talk about that <laughs> later. Um, but, but what is your, you know, what is your origin story? How did you get here? And, uh, you know, let's dive deep into it. We're going to spend about 10, 15 minutes looking at that. Yeah, I, I don't know where to start because it feels like every piece from like kindergarten on somehow plays a role into how I got here. So it's like, how far back do you want to go? <laughs> go all the way back. Go yeah. all the way back. I, um, yeah. I think it's really important to say now I am an engineer and um, I really love my job and it's really great. But I think it's important. Let's go back to high school, let's say, uh, where I thought I was actually going to be a journalist because I really liked history. I li really liked writing and I was really bad at math and science. That's like what I was getting. Th that was the gist of my high school, uh, at least in the beginning, especially math. I've gotten C's in math from, uh, I think it was like trigonometry all the way up to differential equations. Actually, that's, I, I got a B in differential equations, but I got C's the rest of the way. So it's really important to uh, know that you don't necessarily have to be an A plus student to eventually get your engineering degree. Um, so yeah, I decided, I was like, oh yeah, let's go travel the world, journalism. And as it came time, like senior year of high school, trying to really figure out what I wanted to do, um, you know, just things were shifting. And I thought, well, you go to college to learn and these are the things I'm good at and I'm really bad at math and science. So I guess that's what I need to go learn more of if you think about it that way. And so yeah, I yeah. went to an all engineering school, no journalist option available. So I was like, I guess we're doing the engineering thing. Um, and because of that, I, I didn't have this like preconceived notion. You talk to a lot of engineers and they want to be a chemical engineer or a petroleum engineer, or I want to work on cars. I want, they know what they want to do. And I went in just like, I don't know how I ended up here, but this is what we're doing. Um, obviously my grades weren't bad enough to where I couldn't get into this school. So it worked out well. And from there, I just kept following uh, my passion, I guess. I call it like my stomach pull, you know, and if you're really excited about something and it feels like you're about to go over the, the, the ledge of a roller coaster. And it just kept happening with space. That's where I kept being drawn to. So I was like, I guess we'll go do the space thing. Um, and then I went and worked in DOD for two years right out of college. I, oh, I did a satellite tracking. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Which school did you go to for, uh, you said, not an engineering school? No, I was just a, it was just high school thoughts and everything like that. And then for my undergrad, I went to Colorado School of Mines. So that's a full engineering. Okay. 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 Um, what I meant was, uh, did you give up on the idea of journalism or that's a big switch? Yeah, that's a big switch. Did you, did you decide that you wanted to not do journalism? Was it an active decision or did you say, okay, I'm going to school to learn something. The thing mm -hmm. I don't know is math and science. I want to learn math and science. I guess I really have not thought about that. So thank you for asking that question. That's an interesting question. I don't think I ever really gave up on journalism. And that kind of leads into other things that I'm interested in. I think as a career, maybe journalism is different than what I expected or, or something like that. But I, I have my own blog and I really try to use my social media platform to tell a story, to kind of, it's not straight up journalism, but I've brought that love of researching, finding things out, and then sharing something with the world. I think that's came, come into how I present myself on social media and on my blog. So it's not gone, but it's like, it's just kind of shifted into something a little bit more passionate about, I guess. 
So more rather than journalism, where you dig into a story, learn it from the background, and then share it, you are kind of sharing your own experiences as a communicator of your own story. Okay, that's yeah, that's a fair way to put it. Yeah, the journalism stuff kind of, kind of plays a part, but it's like it's a sub part, not the main story. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Yeah. So engineering here i am and like i said i worked dod for a few years realized dod wasn't for me um and this is kind of where you come into the story a little bit two years into my career i was like okay i don't like my job right now so i started applying to tons of jobs i can't even tell you guys how many job recs i applied to and i had five job offers all of them were still dod but still like closer to space so i was like okay we're getting into the right direction and then I had one job off or job interview interview that came out of the blue. A recruiter had found it and matched me. And it was for this little company called Paragon Space Development Corporation. I knew nothing about them, but I knew that it was, I had these other offers and they needed answers. And you and I were talking and I was like, yeah, I think I might cancel the interview. And you said, whoa, 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 don't do that. Like, just give it a second. Just he's like, I know those guys. You should just go into the interview, see what you think report back to me what you think of the company. And I did. And like almost immediately, I called my mom and I said, Hey, mom, I think I have to move to Tucson. And she was like, what are you talking about? I'm like, that was the best interview I've ever had. And by the time I was off the phone with my mom, I had a job offer. And that's the job that I had for two and a half years before coming to this one. It was uh, so Paragon does environmental control and life support systems, which is ECLIS. So that's oxygen, CO2 removal, that sort of stuff. That's the human space flight that I wanted. I had all these other DOD offers that I could have just kept kind of chugging along. But thank you so much for stopping me from canceling that interview because <laughs> it completely altered the trajectory of my career just to go into the room and say, hey, I'm here to figure out what, what's going on and see if this is a fit. You just kind of have sometimes have to be open to those opportunities. And um, now, yeah, I work at Blue Origin as a life support engineer, ECLIS engineer, and then also some other things, crew systems and EVA. Basically, it helped me find my passion that I love humans in space. It's putting humans in space and how we're going to do that correctly is what my passion is. Yeah. Brilliant. 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 I love, I love Paragon. I've been mm -hmm. impressed by those folks. Arguably, I think they're the best environmental controls life support <laughs> system in the world. I mean, I really, I really do. That's what I told you three years ago. Yeah, I remember. I remember that conversation pretty vividly because you were coming in from, was it, was it Raytheon? Yep, yep. Yeah, you were coming in from Raytheon and you're like, well, I've got this, I've got this, I've got this. And you were still partway through. I don't know whether you were a senior or a or your first year of your master's, where were I don't first, remember where. First year of my master's, yeah. You've got a great memory, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so here you were, you know, what I call fifth-year student, uh, trying to figure out where you fit. Everything you were doing at School of Minds was focused on on people mm -hmm. and and uh, lunar development, and you were so frustrated with Raytheon. I mean, not, not to throw the folks under the bus. They're really solid engineers, but it wasn't what you were aiming to do. It wasn't. Yeah, I'm a moon girl. Yeah. That's DOD. It just wasn't mixing, yeah. you know? Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah, it was, you had asked me for like a, just a, you know, a, a personal one-on-one -on -one conversation. I think we did it just here. Not, not the same office where, where it was. But it was, yeah. Mm -hmm. but, 
Yeah, it was just one of those things where a little soul searching. You weren't kind of in that soul searching. What do I want to do when I grow up? <laughs> Still career? there, but yes, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and so uh, let, let's talk about Paragon for a minute. I mean, I know that they've got some projects you cannot talk about. Of course, yeah. Blue Origin. So I don't want to do that. But in broad strokes, how do you go from how do you go from Honeybee to Raytheon, Raytheon to Paragon? Is there a through line there, or was it looks to me on the outside, it looks like Raytheon was the outlier, but Honeybee goes directly to uh, Blue. Uh, Paragon into Blue. Yeah. 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 So I, I interned at Honeybee Robotics for two summers, and that was before they were bought by Blue. This was before, like, Right. I even saw the connection between them. And uh, it was a really great experience. I got that opportunity because I was talking to a friend of mine who was pretty high up at Lockheed. And I was like, can I get an internship? And he said, you don't want to intern here. Not, once again, nothing against Lockheed, but he said, you want to go get your hands dirty. Let me send you to these, this little company up in Monument, or excuse me, in Longmont and uh, go see what you can do up there. And that's what I did. I loved it. And at the end of the day, it was just one of those that was like, okay, I did that. Let's go see what else is out there. And then when it came time to find a job, it's really hard to find a job. And Raytheon was the first one that sent me an offer letter. And I was like, I'm scared. Let's jump in. Let's do this. Because, um, I mean, it, you get frazzled. And, and actually, if there's any, like, soon-to-be grads or recent grads, it's really easy to just accept the first job that's on your plate. And it's not bad. Obviously, that's how I got to where I am. Um, that's where I learned about systems engineering. I'm a systems engineer, so I had no idea that was an option before Raytheon. So I'm really grateful that they were able to show me that and a lot of other opportunities. But sometimes it's okay to step back and say, hey, maybe you, you've had this like space thing going. Maybe this doesn't quite align with that. And maybe maybe you either jump in knowing you're going to learn something that you'll apply to it later on, or you say, thank you so much, but let's let's see what else is out there and, and really focus in on what your goals are and make sure that that lines up. Cause sometimes it's like, I just jumped in. It was easy. I was scared. Like that's what happened. And it ended up working out for me, but sometimes it's really easy to get stuck in those jobs for 20 years. And then you look down and you say, Oh, Oh crap. How did this happen? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice. All right. So let's talk about Paragon for a minute. Mm -hmm. What did you learn there? What didn't you learn that you were missing? What successes did you have and what stumbles did you have? Oh yeah, let's talk about it all. And before I jump in, like, you know, Paragon was, I, I have to owe it to them for picking up this little DOD girl who had no idea about life support and giving her a chance in the big leagues. That was kind of, they, they were the, the starters for me. And I, I, I can't say enough good things about Paragon. I think, I mean, I learned about life support. I learned about human spaceflight through this. I got to do work and all these other things that a lot of people would just be like, that's a real thing that an average person can do crazy and that's something i was able to do at paragon um i learned a lot of small companies i love honeybee i love paragon i love the small companies because you get to just it's a family like it sounds kind of corny but it truly is a family and you get to really know everyone and um just i don't know it's, it's just a different feel I, I had a whole bunch of different hats on so in terms of like learning i had to do all sorts of different jobs and figuring things out which i love the what I didn't learn, let's see. I think what, one of the reasons that I had decided to go on to Blue Origin is because I was really excited to 
to get out of the R&D phase and really build something. And that was just kind of where, you know, when you're in a smaller company, that's what you do is research and development. And then when that's kind of, that was kind of one of those transition points of like, okay, I've done a lot of learning. Let's go put it to the test now. It had nothing to do with Paragon. It was the, what's the next phase. And then um, successes was just everything. There was so much win from that company of learning in a safe place where it's okay to fail. And then get back up and, and keep going. I really learned kind of about that integrity and that indomitable spirit. I think one of the biggest levels was probably like the first time that I was put in a management position. I'm still pretty young in my career. So I put in this management position and it was a huge lesson on what is it to lead someone? Like I know how to lead myself. I get up in the morning, I brush my teeth and I go to work. But when you have to like lead a team and have that direction, it was definitely, I would say my time that was a stumble that led to now I know what I want to be as a leader in the future. So I hope that answered all of your questions all at once. But <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. You know, I, uh, I think the world really focuses on big wins, successes, you know, knock it out of the park. Like I think our whole society focuses on that. Um, in my own opinion, I think you learn lessons by when you have you know, skinned your knee, when, when you fall in and you have to figure out what the next step is, how to get up and how to take that next step. Yeah. So I do yeah. think there's things that, that maybe we spend too much time focusing on the successes, I agree. maybe not yeah. enough time focusing on other things. So in your case, uh, do you mind if I ask how old you are That's, and yeah, how old you were in that leadership Super fine with all of that like transparency. I'm 27 now. I joined Paragon when I was 20, uh, 24, I think, right, right around then. Yeah. So um, yeah, I guess. And then you know, grad school was 20, 23 to 25. That's kind of the age range, I guess, that we're working in. Yeah. So you were 24, 25, 26. Uh, running a small team. Paragon's not a big company, so it's mm -mm. not like you had a cast of thousands to deal with. But no. uh, what what were the challenges? What was your broad strokes? What was your project? Um, I had four projects while I was there. Um, I worked on the Dianetics proposal for the first round of HLS way back when SpaceX won. That's what brought me to Paragon. I worked on Gateway, and then I worked on some stuff that I can't talk about, Think More Space Tourism, which was a really interesting idea because you know we've been focusing with like nasa requirements and we knew what they wanted uh when it comes to space tourism they just know that they want to do cool things and so you have to be the one that like okay so you want this this is what you want and it was a really interesting that's one of the reasons that i also went to blues because blue is focused on space tourism and i have a new passion for uh, making that safe and accessible cool all right so how big was your team uh successes and failures with the team let's see i think i'll have to think like successes was just so great at communicating and supporting each other, especially on the like the tail end. I worked in like a tiger team. It was kind of like a fun offshoot team. And so we, I can't even tell you how we just bonded. We had uh, skiing days and when we had to get together, we would go out uh, to dinner and it would be a big, so that was truly like, I felt comfortable. I felt safe with these people. Um, and that's something that, you know, I wasn't expecting to experience in my career, let alone that early. To really just feel like a valued member was absolutely incredible. I have to think like, like lows from like just team dynamics, it's kind of the same thing. When, when you have these miscommunications or when you have, you know, my big thing right now is crew dynamics and kind of mindfulness, I guess, that's been a big part of my career trajectory. When you have these teams that are all so passionate and so focused, sometimes you can get things like 
like ego comes up or you start feeling like this person thinks this. And, and when you don't have this like super wide open communication, those things will fester and become bigger than the project itself even. And so it's really about like nipping those things in the bud, communicating with respect and, and authenticity. And I think that's one thing that I really pulled from Paragon that I'm so excited to bring into the rest of my career. Awesome. Awesome. And we're going to wrap up on Paragon here in a second and jump and spend most of the time on, uh, on Blue and what's next. But so the t- total team size at Paragon, everybody included, it's not even 30 people, right? So let's see here. The max that I saw the company reach was about 230 people in everything. My, yeah. Okay. It, 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 got, it definitely went bigger. I think when I joined, I was like number 62. So I watched it go through this massive. Okay, all right. Yeah. That, that's, that's the paragraph yeah, I'm yeah, thinking yeah. of. Okay. So they've kind of been like figuring themselves out of like how to like manage as they grow and everything like that. Teams that I worked on, like right. HLS was bigger. We probably had like half the company working on that. Like I said, I worked on a Tiger team, which at one point there was five of us. And that was just like, we just got down and rolled up our sleeves and figured out what was going on. So you kind of see this range, but you know, even the teams that I directly worked with were probably 10 people max. It's not the big companies that you see where you have to know everyone in every division because that's right here in front of you. (laughs) (laughs) And and that was, that was happening during COVID, right? So um, that that, that adds a, a layer of complexity on top of everything. Okay. Uh, so fast forward to to where you are now. Uh, you're still doing environmental controls. You're working on, uh, I'm guessing, orbital reef. Yeah. Um, I can't say what I'm working on. I'm actually working on the SLD win, the lunar lander win. So I, I can say that I'm working on that. Yeah. Okay. Which is exciting. I like I said, I'm a moon girl. So like anything to the moon, I'm very excited about. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Um, what's uh, what's your role there? I mean, you go from you know a company where you're employee number sixty two to now you're employee six thousand two hundred and two, right? Like it's yeah higher than that. It is, yeah. Okay. So how 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 many people are at Blue, and what's your what's your employee number in terms of size? Like you brand. That's actually a good question. Yeah, I don't know exactly when. I think I got hired on about around the seven thousand, eight thousand mark. I think they might have to be like nine, ten thousand now, somewhere in there. But, but once again, it's very interesting to watch a company grow quickly. That's a very fun thing to be a part of because yeah. you can like feel the excitement. And so I'm kind of doing the same thing as I did with Paragon, just on a larger scale. Right, right, right. Um, are you? Uh, are where are you? I, actually, I don't even know. Where are you? In the in the world? <laughs> yeah, I uh, I left Colorado to move to Tucson for Paragon, and uh, that was one of the other drivers for me is I had to get back to Colorado. So I'm back in Colorado. I've got the mountains over there. Got the sunsets. Got my family. So it's really good to be back. Um, and it's you know Colorado is called Aerospace Alley. It's considered the Silicon Valley for the aerospace industry, kind of because there's so much from Colorado Springs up to Boulder. There's so much happening. Startups, big companies. It's 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 an electric place to be if you're in the space industry. Yeah, I, I honestly, I'm seriously considering picking up and moving headquarters that direction. So I, I, I wouldn't oppose. We could go grab a drink after work. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, uh, what do you want to talk about for Blue? Now, again, I Liftport has signed. I think it's a 17-page NDA with Blue. So I know. I know what that looks like from the outside. <laughs> Your NDA is probably 71 pages. We'll just reverse it. 
Um, so I know you can't talk about it. Blue historically in the industry, in the Seattle region, when they first started, we call them the black hole company because they would just pull information in and then let nothing out, nothing. Right. And so they've been operating like that. <laughs> I got on Blue's radar in 2006 or seven. We didn't sign our NDA until probably the one that matters is 2019, I guess. Yeah, it, it took a while, right? Like they, they brought me in to do a debrief. So that was cool. That was a long time ago. But uh, again, they don't let anything out. So I don't, I don't hold anything against you. If so you it took a while. Like, well, can't talk about that. <laughs> Next topic. But let's talk about what you can talk about here. So what area are you working on? Be as specific as you can. Uh, how big is the team? If you want to, you know, this is a, this is a topic about money and infrastructure and policy. So you can okay. kind of take this any direction. So, yeah. Yeah, I think um, so. What, like I said, what I can say is in my email signature. So if you email me, you can find out this information. Um, I am on the Lunar team, so Lunar Transportation Business Unit, and I am working on the Lunar Lander. I do life support systems, um, which we talked about already. I also do crew systems, which is like the beds, the toilets, the food, the medical supplies, like all the things that you like. Oh yeah, I guess humans do that. I mean, they do need that, and. From what I think about, like Eclis is about keeping humans alive and crew systems is about keeping humans happy. So that's like the best way to kind of okay, that, put it into what's going on. That's actually really interesting. I've, I don't work with, I mean, I work with humans all day long, but I don't work, work with humans <laughs> yeah. in that environment. So environmental controls is to keep humans alive. Crew systems is to keep them happy. Is that what you just yeah. said? Happy and comfortable. Yep. I like that. I like that actually. Yeah. I like that a lot. I, I would say that like the Mercury and Apollo capsule, they probably didn't have the strongest crew systems because it was not super comfortable for those astronauts. <laughs> yeah. 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 And then let's see, I'm also working on um, just said, the other two things that I focus on um, lunar dust mitigation. We mentioned my master's degree, it's in space resources or in, in tissue resource utilization, ISRU. When I was doing that, I got really interested in the moon moon girl and lunar regolith for building material, water on the moon, those different areas. And so when I came to blue, I was like, yeah, I've done something with dust with plume ejecta. And they were like, great, keep doing that. And uh, people don't realize that lunar dust is probably one of the biggest issues that we have on the moon. Radiation is up there um, and everything like that. The lunar dust is actually basically like breathing in asbestos. That's the best way to put it. And on top of that, it's electrically charged. So that means it's sticky asbestos. And so it's just absolutely horrible for humans, for mechanisms. So we're we're trying to figure out that just like the rest of the industry. I jumped into it and I was like, okay, what does the industry got for lunar dust? And I look at it, I'm like, okay, basically nothing. Like no one knows how right. to deal with this. So it's a big issue. Really proud that Blue and on Blue's team to help figure that issue out. And then I also do EVA. So working with the suits of uh, when they go out onto the surface in the big white suits and everything like that. Um, we don't own the suits, but you know we, we're doing the interface and everything like that. So like I told you earlier, it's basically if there's a human involved, I'm probably somehow in the picture, um, making sure they're comfortable, happy, things we just discussed. <laughs> awesome. Uh, I'm going to put in a plug. Uh, we've got a guest coming in in about two weeks or so, early July, mid-July, something like that. 
Uh, it's Melissa Roth. She is a co-founder, partner at Off Planet Research. And their whole gig is dust. Mm-hmm. It's dust. It's, it's how do you make a stimulant for the moon? How do you, uh, how do you deal with dust mitigation? Uh, it's a pretty big deal. It's it's really <laughs> overlooked. Like we've been talking about that for a long time, but we don't have good solutions. We we don't. So yeah, it's gonna be interesting. Uh if yeah. you were if you were local, I'd suggest a, a beer with Melissa. Uh but we'll I'll connect. Okay. I'll I'll get on her radar, but yeah, yeah. For sure. I mean it's just one of those that like there's no single path, like there's no one answer to solving dust it's just like you might have to do this you might have to do that other like it's it's a very if, if you want to be if you're one of those like detective engineers you want to go figure out a problem that's the problem to go focus on because it is just mind-blowing yeah. how deep yeah. it goes yeah. yeah you know us we're trying to build an elevator on the moon so if you can imagine a string stuck into the lunar which i love yeah. uh, i'm super worried about your big rockets coming in and blowing literal tons around the moon dust and it's it's not just you it's 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 blue it's spacex there's a couple others that are aiming for it for the moon anyone going to the moon right like mm-hmm. this is this is a uh this is an unsolved problem that's going to affect everybody else so if you go on a thursday the other people that show up on saturday are still dealing with your problem and the people who show up a month later are still dealing with your problem so cumulative additive problem that I think we're taking for granted. And I think it's going to be terrible. So uh, I'm glad you're working on that. <laughs> Very dusty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, not, it's, not an easy, it's not an easy solution. There's not a solution to it yet. So if it touches a person one way or another, you've got, you've got, you know, some role in it. Uh, let's just kind of take them a little bit at a time. Uh, let's talk suits. Let's let's talk suits because I think they're pretty neat. What what do you do with suits? They're not your suits. You're talking about the interfaces, the connectors, coolants and gases, filters. You know, this widget goes connects to that widget, and you have to figure out how to make that connection airtight, seal, stuff like that. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, uh, we'll be, since we have the NASA contract, that means if, if you guys have been attention that Axiom is making the next generation of NASA suits. So we will be interfacing with the Axiom suit, but obviously they don't have a suit yet. We don't have a lander yet. We're still learning what that's going to look like. And so it's a lot of that kind of um, discussion and making we're all on the same page. NASA, of course, because NASA is our, our contractor, um, which as a systems engineer, this is what I love. It's, it's kind of the figuring it out. I'm not going to say like an, like an engineering standpoint, but like a people engineering. Like how do you get the teams to work together? How do you get the communication to be there? Um, so I think it's been super fun. And if you're just talking suits in general, like I said, I've got a little bit of a background in suits. I could talk about suits all day. I think they're amazing. I can talk about the issues that we're seeing with suits, um, IVA versus EVA. I'm really excited to see. Do you want, okay, you want me to talk about IVA, EVA kind of stuff? Or? Yeah, do that. Yeah. Ro- robots are cool. Rovers are awesome. But at the end of the day, if we're not sending a person, yeah. I don't care. Right. Like I, I know what the necessary first steps are, but 
If it doesn't lead to settlement and babies on the moon, I'm not interested. So all, all of the- I love that, babies on the moon, let's go. Right. Yep, yep. <laughs> so eventually, well, this I'm, I'm a little bit famous for this quote. If we don't have babies, we're just camping, right? So, <laughs> right, any, any, any trip to go, right? Any, any trip, you know, I know uh, some of the folks from the Mars Society are going up to the Arctic station here in just a few weeks. Um, that's cool. Great. They spend a couple of weeks in the Arctic. That's really good. They're doing good, good science there, but, but they're just camping, right? They're not going there to settle the Arctic. And if we go to the moon, if we go to Mars, unless we can have children, we're just camping. So I think settlement means kids, some way, somehow, along the way, maybe it's maybe it's not going to happen right away. I got that. I understand all that. But unless we, uh, and by the way, uh, Terry Trevino is one of the guys. He's in the chat right now. So uh, <laughs> oh, I know Terry. Yeah, yeah. he's going so, up. Yeah, he's so, going up that mission. Yeah. Terry, Terry's one of the guys who's going camping. So hats off to Terry. Thanks, Terry, for being supportive. But seriously, if we're not going to the moon, if we're not going to Mars in a way that leads to children, the only thing we're doing is camping. We're not settling that that body. Mm, so interesting. Uh, yeah. Let's talk. You know, these earliest first steps. Let's talk about the suits. Uh, you know, let's move past robots and uh, <laughs> you say. So um, let's talk about suits. You know, that's what you did a little bit in Paragon. That's what you're doing here. So. Uh, what do we not know about suits? What do we take for granted about suits? It's been it's been fifty years since we have to have a. a it, it's been fifty years since we've had a lunar capable suit. So I'm guessing we've done some upgrades, but I really couldn't tell you what the upgrades are. Yeah. So from one thing, I mentioned EVA and IVA. So if you're not familiar with the suit world, IVA is intervehicular activity and EVA is extravehicular activity. So inside and outside. Uh, IVA suits are gonna be, we call them the pumpkin suits that NASA astronauts wear, they're the big orange ones. Um, and you wear them in case of de de like any sort of like depressurization or any like bad events during launch landing, you're inside the vehicle, but something goes wrong. And they were really kind of instated after the Challenger disaster. So that's kind of when it was like, okay, if something goes wrong, we want to have these suits and everything like that. EVA suits are the big white ones that you see. The interesting thing about, and I guess I can get into that a little bit. They're bigger, they're bulkier, um, they're harder to move in. And they are more geared towards you don't have the spacecraft around you. So there's a larger thermal layer. There's a larger radiation protection. Life support system is connected to you. So for IBA suits, you can be in the capsule or whatever and have you hooked up to the oxygen that's over there. And that's great. EVA is when you're out and technically you could have an umbilical and still be connected to all that, but umbilicals get in the way. So a lot of the times they have the giant backpacks that you see. And that's really important for exploring the moon because on ISS, you're close by and you can kind of be tethered if you want. But when you're exploring the moon, you want to be able to walk and, and see what you can find, go on the rovers. So you have to have your CLIS, your portable portable life support system. And that has all of the ECLIS in a condensed little package that can last for eight hours or whatever the EVA needs it to be. So that's kind of the difference between the two. Apollo astronauts actually had this weird hybrid of both of those suits in one. 
So they wore those suits inside the capsule, everything getting ready and having that during launch. And then they were also used on the surface of the moon. From my understanding, it was kind of this like weird hybrid of both. And now we're in this weird phase where we have those two separated. And um, one of the biggest issues that that's me, or, or not issues, a good reason for that on the moon is because, like you said, there's been a lot of upgrades, but for the ISS suits, they didn't really have to worry about walking. When you're in zero gravity, your legs are lower half of your body and you don't need them to walk. In fact, they talk about how you mostly walk with your hands. You're kind of like a little monkey or something. You're pulling yourself around. So exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a big upgrade that needs to happen. One of the reasons that this the Axiom suit needed to happen as well was because the legs were not as developed for the EVA suits in zero gravity for what we're going to need on the moon, where we're going to need them to be able to move their legs and it's be comfortable and them to bend down and pick things up. So there's a lot of bearings that went into um, like thinking like your hip joints, kind of like that area. That's where a lot of bearings went into that to figure out how to do that. Better bearings came into the shoulders. So you can kind of do all of this better. Maybe not this, this is a little too much, but like you can kind of go up and around and, and you have a wider range of access. So a lot of it was kind of a human factors. Um, how, how do we make these suits more can fit to the human body? And we've just seen that progression. The ISS EVA suits and the shuttle EVA suits are even better. And then we're going to see this next generation of lunar suits, suits be even better than that. And we're just going to watch it's just become not as cumbersome as they have in the past. Uh, what about uh, what about mobility and hands? I know that a couple of the astronauts have have uh, bled bled in their suits uh, by just gripping something, opening and closing, opening and closing uh, for for hours at a time. There's a Gosh, I can't think of his name all of a sudden. Blank. Uh, there's a professor at an MIT and ISU that has uh, worked on the Hubble, and he's talked about how how he he bled in his spacesuit trying to fix the Hubble, and the mission was so important. He was like, "Well, I'm not going inside yet because we're not done." And uh, so, what what about what about when you talk about mobility for the hips and the arms, terrific. But at the end of the day, uh, we're smart monkeys. We want to use tools. So uh, how, how do we do with our hands? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I'm going to be honest, I'm not a glove expert. So you're one of those people on and I'll come watch that episode so I can learn more. For the most part, what I can say, pressurize. I've, I've been in a pressurized suit and your fingers become sausages. I had to like have a little switch that you just like click on and off. And I was like, did I get it? I don't even know if I'm touching it. Like it just, it's a completely different experience. It's, it's really hard to explain. I know for like astronauts, I was just in a suit, but I know astronauts are, I mean, they're fitted for their suits. They like you take body measurements from every direction to every direction. And I know they take finger measurements. They take like, this is how long this is. And it, it like, and I think actually they might have their gloves custom made or at least as close to custom made as possible. Um, and they are adjustable to like, be like, oh, this part only needs to be this big. So I know they are working on making gloves better for each human um, and like design. I've got little hands. For those of you that don't know, I'm very, very small. So I got the little hands. I would be interested in custom designed smaller gloves. Um, and then, like I said, I know a lot of research is going into this. I can't answer what specifically is happening. I've heard rumblings of 3D printed suits, which will include more exact uh, measurements for fingers and gloves as well. But this is what I've heard around the block. So. <laughs>
Is that is that an axiom advancement? Because I think that would be really hard to do unless you have a lot of money behind you. Yeah, that would be really good. Yeah. So, so what I've heard most rumblings uh, is uh, actually UND, University of North Dakota. Oh. I understand that they're, I mean, they're a known good place to go for suits. Uh, yeah, from what I understand, they're starting to figure out how can we actually, if, if, you know, they're doing pieces. They're like, oh, let's do the shoulder. Let's figure it out. Well, over, you know, how research goes over the course of years, that could eventually result in a full suit. Huh, that's cool. Both you and Terry will laugh at me, but I never think of University of North Dakota as a, as a space school, even though I know that it is. It's just never top of mind, so that's not very Because it's in North Dakota. It's way up there. No one goes up to North Dakota. <laughs> Unless, unless you're a military officer in the missile missile That's command true, yeah. that is assigned there and then has spare time, so you develop as academic faculty, you develop a really really good rocketry program, and then along the way, now that you've got a good rocketry program and ballistics program, you start expanding. I know Terry went to. Uh, to an analog site mm -hmm. there, and you just put in suit lab exploration points. So, you know, it's it just. I mean, they probably have to just take a road trip out there just and to just see what's go up, see right? What's <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, that's fine. Why don't Why don't you talk a little bit about uh, what you got out of uh, Colorado School of Mines because it's a relatively new program. Their space resources program. Yeah, I think it started 2017, 2018. So I was one of the earlier graduates. I graduated in 2021. Um, it's been a really, it's, <laughs> if this is just to define how my career has been going, it's, I get in on something when it's growing and I watch it grow. Like, I feel like that happened with Honeybee, Paragon, Blue Origin, and uh, UND. Although Blue Origin has been growing for long before I got there, but uh, or not UND, I didn't even go there, School of Mines. But it's been cool to watch that program kind of expand because it started off as this idea. Hey, maybe this second, but 2034, we need to figure out how to have a sustainable presence in space. And that's what drew me to it. I'm all about sustainability. I'm about sustainability, safety, and the human experience, if, if that has not been clear by now. So how are we going to do this space thing where we're not extracting all these resources from Earth just to go do these things. What's the reasoning behind it? And so then that's when I started getting interested in water on the moon. And, you know, asteroids have water as well as cool materials, metals that we can use for different things. And it started, I started seeing the full picture of if we're going to do space, how are we going to do this the right way? How are, how are we going to make sure we're cleaning up after ourselves, using the least amount of materials possible, trying to do this the right way? And I know space has this reputation of being like the billionaire club or why are we going to space when we're and we're leaving our problems here on earth that's not really the point and i think this is a great avenue to show people to make space sustainable for space but then we're going to actually be able to bring that all back to earth and that's what drew me to the program since then the program i mean the program taught me from like a business or more like logistical sense how we're going to do that and so now i like my brain thinks in that way which I, i'm very appreciative of and it also teaches you in areas like space law, space economics. Um, there's a lot of other classes that teach you like, okay, yes, this is the cool robotic thing, but this is how it ties into the larger picture. And I think that like whole well-roundedness is what really that program is really good at. Nice, yeah, I, I, uh, I've admired, I don't know a lot of people up there. I know a few graduates, the professors I know by reputation, but I don't know most of them yeah. directly. 
There are really some great programs in the world right now for, for space education. I think you know my school is International Space University, but I like the idea of a specialist Dang, school. Yeah. I'm never going to go to MIT for oral mechanics. Like that is not my thing. George Washington University for space policy, that that might be my thing. Uh, McGill might be my thing. Uh, but I'm not, a, I'm not, I don't want to be a space lawyer. It's amazing how many specialty programs have come online. Dr. Greg Autry runs the Thunderbird program down in Arizona. Mm -hmm. uh, School of Mines, let's see, Michelle Hanlon runs the program down at Old Miss. Uh, she's focused on uh, lunar, lunar policy and law. Yeah, there's some really remarkable specialist schools. And I think Colorado School of Mines really is the only one that's focused on in situ resource utilization. Is that that? I think I'm right about that. Is that correct? Yeah, I I would say that there are other schools that are doing work in that area. I know CU Boulder, for example, has work in ISRU. I know, I mean, a handful of other schools, yeah. like schools in California. Um, I, I I do know of schools that are interested in ISRU. But School of Minds is the one that was like, hold the phone. Like, we're going all in. We have an entire program dedicated right. to this one thing, not like, I'm interested right. in this. You can go do research in this area and support. This is like the entire program is everyone is thinking ISRU. And I think, honestly, it's changed the way that I see young people coming out of that program, because there's a number of them at Blue Origin and stuff. Those people tend to think about the space industry and the opportunities in the space industry in a different light. They actually think of like, the resources available to you are not just what mass constraints you have coming up from Earth. And that is true for right now. But when you're thinking in the future, you're playing a game of physics and they, they have new tools in that game, I guess. Yeah. Oh, I love the way you said that. That's that's totally right. Yeah, you know, there's some really great robotics programs in the country and around the world. Colorado School of Mines has been doing robotics in mining for a long time. So it was yeah. a really easy jump to add you know one more one more thing <laughs> yeah, right so that's been really cool all right uh we only have about five minutes left so i want to uh if there's anything else you want to talk about if there's something you want to show off i'm happy to have you do that well you know it, it was gonna be it was gonna be a segue from uh the gloves Right. And then we went in a different direction. So <laughs> let's come back to the segue about gloves and talk about manual dexterity. You oh, said no. that you're not a gloves person. That's a different kind of person that works yeah. on, on, on stuff. Um, have you tried, tried to do uh, a Rubik's Cube in gloves before? I have tried ILC Dover, which is the creators of the Apollo suits and the shuttle suits. Um, they had one glove. Like, they didn't have both left and right. They had one glove. So I solved it with one glove. And what I started doing was because I, I just started manipulating with this hand more because this is so hard to do. Um, and I think... What I learned, I think, first of all, I think all astronauts should have to learn how to solve a Rubik's Cube for, for a number of reasons, like 3D spatial awareness, cognitive reasoning, all these different things. But also, I was talking to astronaut Nicole Stott, and she was telling me that she would go guard, would use her hands to, pull, to build her finger muscles for the gloves. 
And I was like, well, have you considered a Rubik's cube maybe? Cause you gotta have fast fingers. You gotta have strong fingers. So I think it would be a huge advantage for astronauts to learn how to solve a Rubik's cube both in and outside of a suit with the gloves on. Uh, but <laughs> you, you know, we know folks at the neutral buoyancy lab down in Houston, that might be a new task to assign. I that. love that. Um, yeah. So let's, let's, okay. So we've got just a few minutes. Uh, let's, let's showcase okay. your skills here and then talk about, about why, why is this, why is this a useful tool uh, for you? And then also why would it be useful to astronauts? To astronauts. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and mix this up and you guys can see me. I'm mixing it up and I'm not cheating. I don't know what, I don't know what I'm doing basically. Um, and I like to say my origin story for Rubik's Cubes was seventh grade. I had a math teacher who said, if you want to learn how to solve a Rubik's Cube, I'm going to start now. Come up to my room during lunch and I will teach you how to solve a Rubik's Cube. And that's what I did. And then it was just like a party trick for many years. It was just like something if, if I was feeling like I was the dumbest engineer in the room, well, I could pull out a Rubik's Cube and I could solve it. So at least I could do that. After that, I was trying to figure out how to get on a zero gravity flight. That was my goal because I, I, I want to go to space. Let's go on a zero gravity flight and figure it out. And that's when I reached out to Rubik's and said, hey, guys, if I do this, would you guys be interested in like spotting me some cash to do it? And they said yes. And they paid for the whole thing. And I got right. to play in DOG where I solved a Rubik's Cube in 19 seconds. So yeah it's like a weird talent it works out well it started in seventh grade i wasn't planning on it being part of my career but sometimes you just tie in those little things uh and it worked out like yeah it was a great experience (laughs) and now i can solve rubik's cubes it's like a thing like and how was it trying to do it on the zero gravity lab uh i'm zero zero uh Zero G flights. Uh, uh, easy, harder, did it make much of a difference? I, I think the hardest part, it wasn't the actual solving of the cube. Like that's all like in this little square and I can do that. But it was like the fact that I was like floating around and like someone like kicked me in the face and like I hit my head on like the ceiling, which is not something you usually have to worry about when you're sitting here solving a Rubik's cube. So it was the fact that I was in this like zero G environment, which as you were saying, why does this matter? That's a really good, can I stay focused on the task at hand? when all the things around me are completely different than what I'm used to. And that's something that astronauts deal with all the time. Like they're fixing something and the, and the screws are wrench. And so learning how to be aware of everything around you while being able to focus on this one thing, it's an astronaut skill, guys. I'm telling you. <laughs> I'm telling you, I, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. Uh, Dr. Morrison in the chat is saying that uh, Colorado School of Mines also has a remote option with students all around yep. the U.S. That's really cool. Um, Bailey, you, you did. did part of that. Yeah, you were part of the mm-hmm. remote program. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. also international, yeah. just as a heads up. Like people from Japan and like all over, like it's an international program if you do it remotely. And I think that's one of the benefits as well as you get all these different perspectives. Yeah, yeah. How many students are in the program at a given time? Uh, this is now the fourth cohort, third cohort. Yeah, I'm actually not sure what where they're at now. I know they're growing. I would say when I graduated, like my class had six people in it, like who graduated. And then like overall, there's probably maybe 20, 30, 30 to 40 people maybe in the program. I think it's expanding. It's probably getting close to 80 or higher maybe, but it's definitely growing. So jump in now right. if you're interested. Yeah. Nice, nice, nice. Okay, well, we're at an hour. Thank you so much, Bailey. As as Terry just wrote, 
freaking rock star. That's what you just wrote. So nice. Appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. Well, thanks a lot. We'll uh, we'll chat again soon. Uh, When you come up to Seattle to go talk to the headquarters at Blue, uh, stop by, give me a, let me know, and we'll go grab a beer or something. Right on? I'll be back later this year. So you guys can't be part of that conversation. Sorry, but we're going to have another space conversation. It's going to be awesome. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. Bye, everyone. Thank you.